Welcome inside the war room. Ron Bray here as always. So good to have you. Today's episode again is a fantastic one, which is why you should leave a five-star review on your phone right now while you're listening to this. Don't skip. Just hit the five-star and say, Ryan, you're the goat. You're the greatest. You're the best. Or, or if you leave a five-star, you can say, Ryan, you're the worst. But you can't leave a one-star, a two-star, a three-star, or a four-star. We do not accept those here. It's five stars or higher. That is the rule. Okay. Today we have on a great guest, which is Jeremy Friedman from Harvard. See, I'm bringing you Harvard, folks, week after week. It's worth five stars. It's for free. You you couldn't pay for this kind of education. But in all seriousness, before we get into that, let's thank our sponsor, which again is Bluehost. I have been uploading all of my podcasts, all of them. It's a lot to my website over at RyanRaySenior.com, which is hosted by Bluehost. All of my sites, all of my sites are hosted by Bluehost. Yours should be too. Use my link, get started, and oh, by the way, if you do, send me a screenshot and I'll run an ad for you for free on this podcast. Okay, now with that being said, let's get into our guest, who is Jeremy Friedman, who is an associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School the former associate director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy at Yale University. He is the author of Shadow Cold War, the Sino-Soviet Competition for the Third World. And his new book, which I'm getting ready to read when it comes out in January, is Ripe for Revolution. All of this, all of this will be in the show notes over at RyanRaySenior.com. So be sure to check that out so you can sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast with me and Jeremy Friedman. That's backwards, see? It's Jeremy Friedman and I, or me. I, I don't know. I don't know. But this is, listen, listen, listen. You're getting a Harvard education from a redneck. So that's worth five stars. Okay, now to the interview. Well, Jeremy, it is lovely to have you on the program today. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. And yourself? Oh, it is great down here in the great state of Texas. So um, let's get into it. You have a book that kind of caught my attention when I reached out, I don't know, it's been a few months now, I guess, called Shadow Cold War. The Sino-Soviet competition for the third world, and you got a new book. We're talking about in a second. Um, Russia, China—that's always kind of a, an interesting angle. Maybe unpack at starters the thesis for the book, and has anything changed? Because it's been a, a couple of years, I think, since you published that one. Um, so the thesis of the book you're talking about—the first one, Shadow Cold War—there um, are a couple of major elements to it. So one is that. Um, you know, we, we obviously spent a lot of time talking about the Cold War as historians. Um, uh, you know, politically, it seems like one of the most you know, important frameworks of the late 20th century. Um, I think as time goes on, decolonization is going to look more and more significant. Um, and so decolonization will come to sort of overwhelm the Cold War as kind of, you know, the most important event of the second half of the 20th century. Um, and so the book is really situated at the nexus of the Cold War and decolonization. Um, the argument being that decolonization fundamentally transforms what the Cold War is about. Um, and it does this through the mechanism of the Sino-Soviet conflict. So if you think about you know, where the Cold War began, the Cold War really begins in Europe. Um, it's a battle you know, over, you know, between industrialized states over the nature of industrial capitalism, right? Who's gonna own the means of production? Is it gonna be privately owned or state owned? Um, and over time, Right, the sort of the battle of the Cold War shifts to you know more and more what was called then the Third World, right? Asia, Africa, Latin America, the post-colonial states. Um, these are states which 
for the most part, don't really have industry, don't really have working classes. They're primarily um, agrarian economies. Um, they're mostly brand new states, with new political institutions. Um, and so the battlefield shifts away from you know, where Marx had envisioned it, the advanced industrial countries, where it was in the early part of the Cold War, to now being about models of development. How do you grow from essentially you know, nothing in, ter in terms of you know, the modern economy, instead of how do you control the means of production of an already developed economy? And so it shifts economically being about you know, control to being about development. Um, at the same time, you know, the kinds of issues that matter in the developing world are not the same as those that mattered in the developed world. Um, so things like um, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, these things matter a lot more um, in post-colonial societies where these cleavages um, are present than in Europe where you know, these issues are less related to, to economic ones. Um, and so what happens is, the agenda of the left shifts over time, right? This exposes, um, so the, the Sino-Soviet split had long been seen as kind of a battle for leadership of world, you know, of the communist world. And I argue that there are actually two fundamentally different revolutions here, right? There's one against capitalism um, and there's one against imperialism. And these two revolutions, you know, Lenin put them together, capitalism is the highest age of imper imperialism, the highest age of capitalism. Um, and yet they have very different agendas. So, you know, if you're anti-capitalist, your goal is state control the means of production. If you're anti-imperialist, your goal is to remove any influence or power of the developed world in the developing world, um, and often do that militarily. And so the Soviets and the Chinese are on different sides of this. The Soviets emphasize anti-capitalism, the Chinese emphasize anti-imperialism. Um, and over time, the weight of the post-colonial world kind of falls behind China um, and China becomes their leader and that shifts the agenda of the left. And so in the course of the 1960s and 1970s, the agenda of the left shifts from emphasizing anti-capitalism, which fits in with that sort of, you know, advanced industrialized economy story we were talking about in the post-war era in Europe, and it shifts more towards anti-imperialism. And so now it's about the shift of global power from the global north to global south. Um, now it's about, you know, equality of, in terms of, race, ethnicity, and religion as much as it is about, you know, egalitarianism in the economy. Um, and this is a shift which happens because decolonization transforms the agenda of the left. The Chinese become the vehicle by which this sort of agenda imposes itself because they challenge the Soviet leadership. And so kind of the left that we're left at the end of the Cold War is different from the one we started the Cold War with. Okay, so I wanna unpack something you, you said there and kind of think about this. Um, so you have the Cold War era, um, and so before the Cold War, at the end of World War II, when you know you kind of have the you know the the quest to get to, 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 to in Hitler's reign and all this stuff. So you, you kind of you might have seen some writing on the wall. Then as you go through the '40s and the '50s and the '60s, you would have said, okay, this is how we view things in the '70s, '80s, and the '90s. All that would have shifted. So how long, from kind of a historical perspective, before we can really understand all of the impacts of the Cold War? Because I suspect it's going to be another ten to twenty years. Um, before we kind of really deconstruct what we thought was happening versus what actually happened there? Well, so in many ways, the Cold War is sort of, it's an episode within, you know, a larger structure. So, you know, certain things, right, the Cold War is, is the period in which a certain conflict is framed by the United States and the Soviet Union as being the key superpowers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, of course, only existed until the Soviet collapse and really ends after World War II, because before World War II, you know, the Europeans, the British, the Germans, the French are far more important players in the world stage. So the Cold War is a period framed by the U.S. and the Soviet Union as the superpowers. Mm -hmm. uh, but what they're fighting over, 
right? So the nature of modern capitalism, the industrial economy is something that goes back to the late 19th century, right? If you think about Karl Marx and you think about, you know, the French commune and you think about the rise of socialist parties, right? Even in the United States, right? That's really that goes back to, you know, the 19th century and something that we're still fighting about today. So you think about, you know, Occupy Wall Street and you think about Sanders and AOC and right. So this is, this is not something that's over. Um, we're still trying to define what socialism means in the United States, in Western Europe, um, in the Chinese are still, you know, what, there was a time in the 1990s when people sort of thought, you know, that China was really beyond communism, that, you know, China was ruled by something called the Communist Party, but they were no longer really meaningfully socialist. I think people have been, you know, um, disabused of that illusion, I think, over the past 10 years. And, you know, socialism still means a whole lot in China to the Chinese Communist Party today. So the point is, we're not done with socialism. We're not done kind of renegotiating the role of the state in the economy um, and how, you know, a modern industrialized economy should be structured. So in that sense, right, this debate keeps going. The, the also the, you know, the issue of the distribution of power geopolitically, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, how much, I mean, the world has been kind of governed by the victors of World War II, right? The five veto, you know, members of the Security Council, mm -hmm. the US, UK, France, Russia, and China, really they've been the power holders in the international system for the past, you know, 50 years, if you count China's reemergence in, in the UN, but really since World War II. And, you know, how long is World War II going to be the determining factor in, you know, the international system, right? That's going to change too with, you know, will the Europeans still matter as much? Will India matter more? Will Brazil matter more? Will, you know, um, um, Indonesia and others? And so there's a renegotiating, right? We're still emerging from a system of imperialism, which is, means a renegotiation of, of geopolitics. We're still trying to figure out the role of the state in a modern economy. And so in that sense, the Cold War is a period of time in which these issues were framed by the US-Soviet competition. Um, and now that framing is gone, but the issues remain. Um, and we see that very much every day. We see, you know, you can see in the United States right now, you can see a renegotiation of the, the role of the state in the economy. And you can also see a debate over what US-China relations should look like. And, you know, are we, are we partners? Are we, you know, strategic adversaries? Are we, you know, are we rivals? You know, what did, these are still in many, in many ways, you know, outgrowths of the kinds of issues that, you know, the Cold War was built around, but have not disappeared with the Cold War. You hit on so many things there that, that are just got me thinking. So first off, let's maybe talk about socialism because, you know, you talk about the social, you know, as it, most the listeners know, but I'll tell you because you don't know, I'm very much a free market libertarian. I've, I'm always, hey, let's go free markets. And so I, talk, when I hear people talk about socialism and I kind of use it, kind of poke fun at things. It's not actually historic socialism, right? Um, when you talk about Marx controlling the means of production. However, we do have a weird paradigm today to where the government can overly influence, um, at least from my perspective, overly influence what's happening. Um, and so it, it is weird to think about how that conversation has evolved. And we are on some level using terms in the US that date way back. But what we're seeing today isn't historic socialism, I guess, but it's it has that feel to it, right? Is that is that an apt description? Well, I mean, so I think the analogy that I would use, and this is something that's very central to my second book, which um, um, Right for Revolution, which is coming out um, now, it's been pushed back to January 4th, um, is that socialism is, you know, socialism evolves. Um, so I think, you know, to say, for example, that, you know, the socialism we have today is not like historic socialism is sort of like saying, you know, that the Christianity we have today is not like historic Christianity. Okay. And yes, of course, if you look at, you know, 
Christianity of the second century or Christianity of the 11th century. It's different than Christianity we have today, sure. but, it's, but it's an evolving process, right? There are things that are in common. Um, and so, you know, for example, um, I mean, if, if I had to define socialism in a sentence, right, I think the key, the key phrase would sort of be socialism means social control of the means of production. Um, that to me is sort of, you know, the key definition. And, you know, so once upon a time in the Soviet Union, social control of the means of production meant state ownership of the means of production, right? And you had a centrally planned economy in which the state, you know, planned everything that was, you know, all output and all input. And, you know, um, I mean, it got to the point in the 1970s when the Soviet Union was trying to, you know, design consumer needs such that it could predict what everybody would want and how much of it so that it knew what to make, um, right? And the thing is, that sort, you know, centrally planned economy, which the state owns the means of production, right? That has certainly gone by the wayside. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody's really advocating that anymore. That's not, that's certainly not what someone like Bernie Sanders or AOC means by socialism. Right. But because that kind of socialism was seen to have failed by people in the socialist world while the Soviet Union was still in existence. So, you know, people like Janos Kornai, you know, um, you know, economists, he was a Hungarian economist um, at the time, had already talked about the failures of the system while the system still existed. And there were many trying to reform it. So, um, you know, Hungary had its own version of reforms. Yugoslavia had reformed communism. There were the casino reforms in the USSR. And the Chinese reforms, the Deng reforms, the most famous ones in the 1970s, 1980s, right, come out of this very idea that, you know, the system as it was put in place by Stalin no longer worked, never really worked that well in the first place. Um, so they never gave up on the idea of socialism, right? They just gave up on this particular interpretation of socialism. So, you know, you can imagine, for example, that you can translate social control to means of production as state ownership, but you can also translate it as a situation in which the state sets the incentives that private industry has to follow. Mm. Um, so if the state, you know, can regulate enough and, you know, use taxes in certain ways and things like that, that, you know, it directs private investment where it wants it to go um, and make certain things possible for private industry and certain things not, right? Then you still have, you still have social control, right? In the sense of society is still determining what private industry can do. It's just not the same thing as state ownership and central planning. Um, and so if central planning turns out to be very inefficient, then your, your answer might be, okay, well, let's let market forces work, but let's create incentives that we want the market forces to follow. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you're seeing is an evolution of socialism that's not disconnected from its history. Um, it's just, you know, socialism adapts and learns, you know, sort of from its failures or socialists, I should say, learn from the failures of socialism. Um, and it adapts the way other, you know, other ideologies adapt over time. I mean, even the capitalism we have today is not the capitalism of 100 years ago. Well, uh, yeah, and so that that would be exactly what I would. Uh, so first off, that definition I think is extremely helpful. Um, and what I would say is, when people say, "Well, this is a failure of capitalism," it's like, no, no, no. Well, okay, we can debate whether capitalism would have worked or not. But what we just did was not capitalistic. So if you want to talk about, in theory, what capitalists could have done, that's one thing. But it's so. Um, I like how you've defined socialism there because it's it's a more helpful paradigm to think about, and I do, I can just exactly see the the trend that you're that you're tying there. That, that's that's a good way to frame it. So um, no, I think that's I think it's very helpful because when I'm thinking about you know like the China Belt and Road Initiative and how it impacts the world, that's that's kind of touches on some of what you're getting at there. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, I think there you know there are certain ways in which the Belt and Road Initiative you know, parallel certain things that China was already doing in the 1960s um, in terms of reaching out to the developing world. Um, 
part of it is, you know, about geopolitics, of course, and yeah. uh, attempting to, sh you know, shift the orientation of many countries to, you know, the more dependent you are on China, the more likely you are to let's say vote with China in the UN, um, right. the more likely you are, right, to stay out of an American military alliance. Um, so these, these things all matter, of course, um, geopolitically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think China also, and this goes back, you know, at this point, really, I mean, the, 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 the Chinese regime is obsessed with the fall of the Soviet Union. They have been obsessed with the fall of the Soviet Union since the day the Soviet Union fell, right? Trying to figure out what happened, what did the Soviets do wrong? Um, and so how do we fix this and prevent it from happening to us? And so one of the things they've been worried about for a long time is if democratization, right? The idea that multi-party democracy and free markets become seen as the wave of the future, become you know, the de facto norm, and anyone who you know, deviates from the norm is basically historical anachronism, then their days are numbered, right? You can't, you know, and this scared them during the Arab Spring, it scared them in the color revolutions. Um, and so China has an interest in making sure that, you know, countries still exist and prosper with, you know, state dominated economies, with single party regimes, right? They need this sort of, they need other countries that look like them out there in the world that succeed um, because if they're the only one that looks like them, they feel like their days might be numbered. Okay, let's, the other thing that you mentioned I wanted to touch back on was during this Cold War era, one of the things that really came predominant in the U.S., and we're still seeing that today, is the military-industrial complex. So fighting the Soviets all over the world, these proxy war, wars, it, it still feels like we have a Cold War-era mentality uh, on that. Do you think the Russians, because I, I, I personally think that the Russians are far less interested um, than we are about what's going on. It, it, I could probably tease that a little bit better, but but by and large, it feels like we have a um, hyperfixation on Russia. Um, it, what is the Russia's post-Cold War era thoughts on these proxy wars? Are they as interested as we are, or do they kind of play the game because we're playing the game? Any read on that? So my, I, I actually don't think, I think we talk about Russia a lot in, in the media and you know, let's say on Capitol Hill, I think more so than it's talked about in the Pentagon, where, you know, if you put China and Russia next to each other in the Pentagon, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a gorilla and a mouse. Yeah. Uh, I think that's not necessarily reflected in public discourse. And I think that has a lot to do with domestic politics. And I think, you know, the connection that was seen, you know, real or imagined between Putin and Trump, I think, captured a lot of popular imagination, but that has less to do with Russia than it has to do with Trump. Um, so I don't think, I don't think we're really as concerned about Russia from a security perspective, and the same way we are with China, um, the way it might seem if you, you know, follow, you know, the media or, or, or what people talk about on the Hill. Um, I, think, I think there's a fundamentally different sort of Russian approach to foreign policy now than there was in the Soviet Union. I don't think they're very um, comparable. And I think the reason is um, Russia today sees itself as essentially playing a defensive game. Mm. Um, so, you know, they see the long-term trends are really against Russia, right? Demographic trends, economic trends, right? This is a country that, you know, still is in demographic decline. Um, it might be starting to, to, you know, to stabilize that, but it's, it's certainly declining in populations to fall the USSR. Um, they're still desperately trying to get people to have more babies, right? They understand that in the long run, right, Russia as a world power depends on demographic and economic growth, right? And those things are, of course, connected. And they're still in, in decline in both, right? I mean, what what does Russia make besides, you know, oil, gas, and weapons that anybody else wants to buy? Um, and the answer really is not. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, they, but they, but they understand this perfectly well. I mean, there have been many attempts in Russia in the past 20 years 
to, you know, the Soviet Union had an incredible scientific apparatus, right? I mean, we know they were great at making weapons. And they were great, you know, biological weapons, chemical weapons, lots of things. Um, they could turn this, if they could turn this into biotech and, you know, nanotech and everything else, right? They could be at the forefront of many industries. Um, they haven't been able to do that because they don't really have rule of law. And so, you know, people can't protect patents and things like that in Russian courts. Um, and so who's going to start a, you know, a biotech company if you, you know, if you, either you're going to be, you know, shaken down for 110% of your revenue and taxes, or, you know, you're going to have someone infringe your patent or whatever, your IP. Um, so it hasn't worked yet. But they understand that fundamentally, right, Russia's in demographic economic decline and its future as a world power depends on being able to reverse those. So they think, okay, they're in decline. The West is aggressive. The West is trying to sort of, you know, encroach upon their footprint. So first, the West took Eastern Europe, right? NATO expansion in the 1990s. The West took Poland from them and Hungary and so on and so forth. And now the West is trying to push into the former USSR. So we're trying to take Ukraine and Georgia. And of course, you know, we took the Baltics from them. And so they see the West as encroaching further and further onto their space. So basically they're playing a defensive game. They're saying, look, you know, until we turn the, the ship around, right? Demographic economic ship and start, you know, increasing our, our real fundamental, you know, power, we have to play a defensive game. We have to protect what we still have, you know, until we can turn it around. Um, and so they're trying to keep the West out of the former USSR, keep them out of Ukraine, keep them out of, you know, Georgia. And they're really losing at this if you think about it, right? If you imagine in 2013, before, right, before, you know, the, the, you know, the annexation of Crimea and before everything that happened in, in Ukraine in 2014, right, Russia really sort of controlled 100% of Ukraine, right? Ukraine was really dependent upon Russia economically and such. It wasn't in the EU, it wasn't in NATO. Now, right, they've annexed Crimea and they've, you know, they control a chunk of Eastern Ukraine while the other 80% of the country is moving increasingly towards the West, right? More integrated with the EU. And so Putin in 2013 had 100% of Ukraine. Now he has 20% of Ukraine. Um, so they're really sort of not doing this very well. Um, but if you think about what they're doing, right, they're playing a defensive game where they try to keep the West out of their neighborhood. Um, the Soviets had an offensive game because they believed that in the long run, they were going to win, the world would be communist. Um, and so it was only a matter of time, right? What they had to do was stop the West from preventing the inevitable, you know, progress of communist revolution around the world. So they had an offensive strategy, which would end up with, you know, Soviet world domination and, and global communism. And now it's a defensive strategy. It's trying to keep the West out of their neighborhood. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I've been a big critic of uh, NATO in this sense that the Europeans want to buy natural gas from Russia, which is fine. It's cheaper. I don't have a problem with that. Capitalist, that's fine. Um, so we don't need NATO then, right? Because, and I always equate to this, don't call up the mafia uh, to say you want to work with them and then tell me that you need me to protect you from the mafia. And, and so when you start thinking about it, and I'm not trying to make a universal statement here, but when you talk to Europeans, of course, the closer you get to the border, the perspective on what Russia is and who they are changes. It's, it's much like here in the U.S., the closer you get to the Texas-Mexico border, you have differing opinions. And the further you get away, you have different opinions. And so I, I feel like we've made Russia into this big, bad boogeyman. You look at their GDP, you look at the demographics, you look at all the things they say, and then you talk to the Europeans who are buying products from them on the regular. It just feels like there's a lot more hype around Russia's potential to be a threat um, than there is. Another thing is um, Putin, to, 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 to pick on him, He's in power. He wants to stay in power, right? So an offensive war against the West or its allies would probably would, could potentially um, bring the end. So yeah, I, I feel like there's just a lot of hype um, around Russia in the in the talking head space, if you will. And it, it, to me, it's always 
always like to hear the experts because it seems there's a lot more, a lot more smoke than there is fire there. I mean, look, my read on Putin is that Putin is fundamentally a very cautious leader. Putin will only will only sort of take what he is sure he can get without um, you know too much trouble, um, which was the case in Crimea. Um, I think if you had a more uh, a less risk averse, more aggressive Russian leader, one can imagine that Russian leader, let's say, messing with Latvia or Estonia, um, where there are you know Latvia is you know thirty five percent ethnic Russian. Um, very easy for you know a, a Russian leader to, to infiltrate some you know special forces in there, create you know unrest in Latvia, and then and then see if NATO responds. Right? Is NATO going to risk you know risk war over Latvia for an Article Five commitment? Right. Uh, and that'd be you know and 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 you know and the big win for Russia would be well if they don't do anything, then Article Five is you know is gone and NATO is dead, right? And you defeated NATO. So so a less risk averse Russian leader could do something like that. And there's fear that Putin might, but Putin hasn't done it so far. So, um, and in terms of fear, right, there's, there's fear of Russia among East Europeans. So, you know, in Poland, you know, in, in politics, um, and for good reason, historically, right? If you, if you understand the kinds of, you know, things that Russia has done in those countries historically, um, that fear dissipates very quickly once you get to Germany. Um, right. So, right, the, you know, polls have shown that very few Germans would be willing to, to you know, fight a war against Russia if Russia invaded Poland. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I see Russia as, you know, especially Putin in particular as being sort of fundamentally cautious. Um, and I don't think they represent kind of the global threat to American interests that China does. Yeah, and, and um, I, the, the question for me becomes, um, you know, from Russia, Russia's perspective, you know, um, you talk about the map being redrawn, right? The map was redrawn by by hand, if you will. Obviously, war um, is what led to that. But um, you know, in Russia, probably believes that they have some legitimate claims to that. I don't know. If, you know I'm not a expert on this stuff, but they, they yeah, and there is a demographic issue there, and so um, it would be interesting to see. Obviously, I don't want anybody, you know, I don't want war or something like that. But I have heard people that are more sympathetic to the Russian side say they actually have pretty good claims to. To some of this property or some of this land, they have people that are more sympathetic to them. And I'm sure they have people, like you say, that are in Poland that are that are um, far more concerned. But yeah, the Germans, yeah, they're just like, hey, let's go do business. And the Ukraines, I think, are kind of interesting because I've kind of heard mixed opinions on what people in Ukraine think, especially as you get closer to the to the border there. Well, I, I think you know the the funniest thing I've heard is that many Ukrainians will say that Putin is the father of the Ukrainian nation in the sense that you know um, you sort of post Soviet Ukraine. Um, it's sort of, you know, an interesting kind of, eth- you know, ethnic mishmash, right? The Eastern part speaks Russian, sees itself more as Russian, the Western part. And there's, there's, there are historical divergences, um, very strong ones between Western and Eastern Ukraine. Um, and because of that, right, politics were dysfunctional in terms of East versus West. You think going back to 2004 and the color revolutions and, um, you know, Yushchenko versus Yanukovych. Um, and what's happened now is because essentially Russia's cut off, you know, the most sort of, you know, ethnically Russian um, parts of Ukraine, cut off the parts of it that were most sympathetic to Moscow. He's what is created as a rump state in Ukraine that has now unified in its opposition to Moscow and Putin. So he's essentially Putin has created a unified pro-Western Ukraine where none existed before. Okay, so with all that being said, I think about China, um, they are making some of the same mistakes, if you will, that Russia made, right? So you talk about demographics, uh, China had the one-child policy, now they're like, hey, you know, we want to have children. And it's interesting to see how these kind of really heavy top-down regimes, they can't learn the mistakes of the others. And so my question, I guess, is um, 
it's not hard, I think, for someone to observe that if you don't have, you know, above the fertility rate, you're going to be, in a, you're going to be in a problem, like real quick in a hurry. Um, a lot of Europe, Europe is trying to figure this problem out as well. And it's hard to incentivize people. Once you've disincentivized them to have children, it's hard to get them to go and have children. We have four ourselves and we're very happy. We love it. But people think we're crazy. Like you got four kids. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, we're, we're, we're oddballs. Um, but it's weird that, that China can't learn those, some of those lessons that, that Russia, that some of the mistakes that Russia had. What's your read on that? Is that just a function of kind of these top-down socialistic, communistic regimes that they can't learn the prior lessons? They think they can do it better. Um, why is that, that a common mistake with them? Well, I mean, so I'd be very careful in saying that China's, you know, incapable of learning lessons from Russia and the Soviet Union, because again, as I've said, there's there's nothing in the past 30 years the Chinese Communist Party has been more obsessed with than learning the lessons of the fall of the Soviet Union. No, no, sure no, no. I meant I meant that lesson specifically, just that lesson. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as far as as far as the population issue, I mean, it certainly seems like, I mean, nobody in the world really, I mean, everybody in the world is having this sort of demographic decline. Um, and nobody's really succeeded at turning it around, right? It's not really clear, you know, to me, this is one of the most important events in human history that's coming up, which is, you know. The global population of humanity has been increasing since, you know, memorial, and we're going to reach an inflection point in this century, which will start decreasing. Um, and this is one of this, this. I mean, this has so many implications, right? Our entire economy, our, I mean, everything about the way we think is built upon the idea of, you know, growth and youth and expansion. And this is right. This is in certain ways, potentially coming to an end permanently in human history. This is so the point is, it's not a Chinese problem. I mean, it's, it's a Chinese problem, too. But every major society is facing declining fertility rates. Um, and some have tried to turn around, nobody's really done it successfully and permanently. Um, what the Chinese were facing, right, and this is still an issue in China is, of course, you know, is resource constraints. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, you know, the, the water level under the North China Plain, right, and this is, you know, one of the most heavily populated, you know, the Yellow River um, Basin, one of the most popular, most populated areas in the world, was falling at a rate of 30 feet a year. Um, you know, China has an increasing amount of difficulty feeding its own people. China imports a tremendous amount of natural resources. So it relies on imported oil and things like that. China actually has, in terms of, in terms of things like arable land and natural resources, it has a lot less than the United States, even though it has you know, four to five times the US population. And so they're facing these resource constraints and they figured they have no choice but to try to, you know, um, to control the population. So they're between, they were between a rock and a hard place when they made this decision. Um, and the truth is now they sort of have the worst of both worlds because um, they're still facing resource constraints, right? They're still short of water. They still face rising food prices and all these things. Um, and they're facing, they're, they're being hurt by the rise of oil prices now too. At the same time as, you know, they have, um, you know, a declining labor supply um, because of, um, which is, you know, which is increasing wages, which means that, you know, companies are going elsewhere. So they have, they have the worst of both worlds um, right now in China. And, you know, it's one thing the Russians are afraid of, by the way, because the Russians figure that, you know, if China runs out of water, the first place they're going to look is Siberia. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Russians are afraid of that too. But and they were they were stuck in a rock in a hard place, and they still are um, when it comes to population and resources. Okay. They part of they were stuck in a rock in a hard place is because of their own bad decisions leading up to that, though, right? So they they made a lot of poor choices leading up to that, and then they it seems like um, they've made poor choices after that. But then they opened up. Um, for a while, and you know, we can debate over how much they opened up or, or whatever. They they did open up um, relative to where they were. They they saw a, a huge economic boom. Um, now they're trying to rein that back in. That's going to be I don't know how it won't be disastrous for them um, because they're just going to compound the problems they already have. 
and, and so I talk about learning lessons, it, it, the, the fixation with Russia, and um, I've got, uh, I don't know if you read Peter Martin's China Civilian Army over here, and he kind of talks about how they dealt with the Russians. It's a, it's a great read, um, but kind of reading that, it's like, guys, why are you not, like the Belt and Road Initiative, when I look at it, I, I'm not necessarily uh, uh, all in on all the things it does, but at least it kind of makes sense. Like you're starting to export labor. You're starting to put people abroad. You know, if they're eating in Argentina, they're not eating in China and they're making money, right? It, at least, at least it kind of is a different approach on things. Um, but yeah, I find that I'm not a China, like it's going to crumble tomorrow, but, but they've got major issues. And I just don't understand why those kind of top-down regimes can't learn the lessons. Does it, and, and I guess I get stuck with that. Does, does it come down to control? They just want to stay in power. Um, and they kind of ignore the obvious signals. Well, so they certainly have major issues. I think whether those major issues will lead to collapse is a different question. Um, but I think, you know, I think perhaps your diagnosis of the Soviet collapse and their diagnosis of the Soviet collapse are different. So, you know, a lot of what you've seen in China in the last five to 10 years under Xi Jinping is his reaction to what they think caused Soviet collapse. So they think, right, that increasing Western influence in the country Right, is part of what caused Soviet collapse. So they see like you know openness to the world, you know openness to to the internet and free information. Right, that's precisely the problem. They look at perestroika in the 90s in the USSR and see like this undermined the moral foundations. People no longer believed in you know the historical validity of the Communist Party and what they had done, and they no longer believed in the moral validity of communism. And people, you know, the party lost its its ideological influence. And once it loses its ideological influence, right, then it's and right, and so so one of the things they're doing is they're fighting to maintain, you know, the certain version of Chinese history, which you know sees the Chinese Communist Party as having saved China and such, and you know built a prosperous society and all these things. So they're 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 so one diagnosis, right? They take away from the USR is the Soviet Communist Party lost its ideological power. We have to maintain our ideological mm-hmm. power. That's number one. Number two is you know they looked at the economy and said, well, we tried to open the economy, but the problem is you know too much private capital, private capital will, you know, have its own interests. And then you have, you know, think about, you know, Madison and, and you know, and, and Hamilton and the Federalist Papers, right? Then you have a public sphere of competing interests. Um, and we can't have that, right? We can't have private companies with their own interests. And, you know, think about companies that might have investments abroad and are worried about relationships and things like that, um, that, you know, also might want more freedom of information and might want more free competition and more transparency, all those kinds of things that, you know, companies might want. Um, private companies want, and they say, you know, we can't risk, you know, diluting the power of the party and the control of the party by allowing too much, you know, private enterprise. And so what they've done is, well, we'll put, you know, communist party cells back in every single private company. Okay. To, the party has a say, right? And the party makes sure that private companies will only follow their own interests to the degree they don't contradict the national interest, which is defined by the communist party, of course. So that's another thing they say. They say, you know, the private private industry and, and the market economy helps for growth to a certain degree. But we can't let it undermine you know, the central control of the party. We can't let it undermine China's national interests. So they're in their own way, they're diagnosing what they see as the threats to stability and they're trying to react to them. Now, whether those reactions will help or hurt them in the long run is something that you know we can debate and we'll certainly, you know, we'll find out. Um, it might be that they're, you know, they're wrong and they're actually, you know, um, kind of accelerating the collapse rather than preventing it. Oh, I uh, think they're very I think the things that you point out is exactly what they're concerned with. And I think that is exactly why it would lead to their, their problems. Like, so if I, when I look at North Korea, I think if you ask Kim Jong-un, he would say all the things that you just said, like in, in, on steroids. So what North Korea has done 
is they've taken the China and the Russia model and they've like mastered it to where no one really gets outside. Like, I mean, there's exceptions, but they really are insulated because they understand what you said uh, on steroids. And so they're like the, the best version, if you will, they're a horrific government, but the best model of trying to keep insulated, trying to believe the party and all that stuff. Like that's kind of where you see it manifested at China opened the box up for a little while and they went, Whoa, okay. Things are moving a lot faster than we wanted to. When you talk about undermining the party, if the par- if there's not belief the party's needed, they lose power. So I, I think you're no, I think you're spot on. I just think that that you can't fix that problem, and that's I think we're seeing that in America as well. You know, we look at America. Um, if you go back to the you know the Trump administration, the, the Trump campaign, 2016, the Make America Great, we saw really for the first time that I can remember um, people questioning was America great, what made it great, and if you if you took that same model in China, they don't want those type of questions being asked. And I'm not saying it's good or bad with the Trump stuff. I'm just saying like you could kind of see that's exactly what China is concerned about. They would be concerned about people questioning, you know, make China great again or whatever the slogan is. They would they wouldn't want that because you can see where we're at today. What happens when those questions are asked outright? So, no, I think you're dead on. I just don't think there's actually a solution unless you go like real North Korean (laughs) and that won't work either ultimately. But I don't know, unless you have massive insulation, how you can prevent, how you can solve those issues. Well, so, I mean, I think, yes, I think, I think you're exactly right, right? These are the kinds of things they're worried about. And, you know, to some degree, like, you know, we always say the generals fight the last war, right? So they're fighting the battle of the 1980s in the USSR, right? Mm -hmm. The Soviet party made these mistakes, we're going to do the opposite, right? We're not going to lose our ideological foundations and our ideological you know, influence. We're not going to privatize too quickly. We'll maintain party control. We won't make Gorbachev's mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, right, they don't have certain vulnerabilities. So one of the things, of course, you know, look at the USSR, what happened to it? Well, it, you know, it collapsed along, you know, national ethnic borders, right? There was no Uzbekistan until they drew in Uzbekistan, and now there's an Uzbekistan, right? Right. Um, so China didn't draw those borders, right? China is much more ethnically uniform, at least according to the Chinese Communist Party version of history. Right. Um, you know, they will they will not allow an, an independent Tibet. They will not allow an independent Xinjiang. They're willing to fight over Taiwan, right? So, so they will they will not collapse along ethnic lines the way the USSR did. They don't have those pressures. They won't allow it to happen. Um, you know, I mean, certainly I would want to live in North Korea. Um, and you can make fun of North Korea, but North Korea still exists, right? So right. you collapsed 30 years ago, North Korea is still there. Um, so at least for somebody, it's you know, the, the stabilization is working. Um, now, China, of course, you know, they don't want to be North Korea either, so they want to maintain somewhat more influence, you know, somewhat more openness to the outside world. They want to maintain a growing economy. And so, you know, their, their objective is to use, you know, state-led development to reach kind of the frontier of, you know, of industry, you know, AI, things like that, and sort of, you know, leapfrog ahead of the United States. Um, and they think that that will provide them with not only economic growth, but also legitimacy and also military power. Mm-hmm. So that's their sort of strategy for not becoming kind of North North Korea. Yeah, no, and I think um, you know, I, I think it's in the same breath. I would say North Korea, North Korea is the worst regime on planet Earth, but also they are very shrewd, and we should we should understand why they do what they do. You know, I think a lot of American commentators kind of miss what's going on there. You know, they they, they fire a missile off and it lands in the ocean. We're like, ah. Well, they're all there beat their chest like we're not scared, scared afraid of the americans you know and so um the game that they're playing um to stay in power is, is is shrewd i guess is the word okay let's turn to your upcoming book though you talk about emerging markets the third world um when did we uh, when did we kind of abandon the term third world and call it emerging markets or are those terms different because it seems like we kind of interchange them today so do you have a good definition or is it all the same thing 
Well, I, I think the third world sort of fell out of favor as a term in the 1980s. I, I don't think emerging markets exactly maps onto it. Um, so the third world, right, the term third world comes from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a geopolitical term, right? There's, you know, the first world, which is NATO, countries are military allied with the United States. There's the Warsaw Pact, militarily allied with the Soviet Union. And there's the third world, which is the rest of the countries, mostly, in, you know, in what we call today, really the global south, um, which are not aligned with either. And so it was initially really kind of a military political term. It became an economic term sort of later when, the, you know, those countries were also associated with, you know, poor economies that needed development. And so um, it became, you know, a source of, you know, a locus of development aid and development projects and such. In the 1970s, right, the third world was actually, um, you know, a, a term of pride. It was because people were trying to turn the third world into a kind of a united political economic front that would be able to challenge the first world. And so if you think about the time, you know, the, the OPEC oil embargo of 1973, the new international economic order proposed the UN in 74, right, the third world then was sort of a term of pride associated with the non-aligned movement, things like that, you know, things were political organizations that were trying to unify, right, Asia, Africa, and Latin America to sort of overthrow the global power order that had been, you know, imposed by the global north, right, especially, you know, the US, the Europeans, the Soviets, and such. Um, that sort of, so, so it's very much term tied to the Cold War because of this, you know, first world, second world, third world structure. So at the end of the Cold War, it kind of um, falls out of favor. Um, it, it comes to be seen as pejorative, I think, later on, 1990s and later. It wasn't really seen as pejorative um, in the 1970s. Um, and so, you know, there are emerging markets. Um, emerging markets don't necessarily refer to every single country because not every country is emerging, right? Emerging really is sort of larger ones that are growing. Um, I think in, in the academic world, we tend to talk about the global south more um, in terms of what was known as the third world then. Would you agree with, and I was trying to find the book here. I thought it was right here, but it's not. Um... I can't remember the gentleman's name. I think it's Collier, The Bottom Billion. Have you read that book? And then he distinguishes, um, are you familiar with his work? Yes. Okay, would you, would you, how would you categorize that with the, with the categories that you just laid out? Well, so in that sense, you're talking not necessarily about, you know, the entire global South. Right. That's sort of those who are not in emerging markets, right? Countries that, you know, are failed states, not doing well, especially, you know, those in parts of states. So, you know, we think about, India as a rising world power, um, and yet a very large portion of the people in the world living in absolute poverty still live in India. Um, right. Because, right, the, the, you know, the economy is growing, some people are doing well, but that does not mean that, you know, the, that economy encompasses the entire population of the country. And so, um, you know, we, you, you draw distinctions not only between countries in the global south that are emerging, that are growing, um, and that are not, but also between, you know, different segments of the population in each country, right? Some parts of those populations are becoming, you know, wealthier, more globalized, middle-class consumers, and some parts are being left behind. Yeah. So some of the bottom billion would be what you're talking about your upcoming book, and some of them would not be, right? I'm sorry. Say that again. Yeah. So some of the bottom billion would be in part of your upcoming book, but some of them would not be because of the India dynamic per se. Well, so the book has the book has five chapters in five different countries. Um, so it specifically deals with Indonesia, Chile, Tanzania, Angola, and Iran. Um, Iran and Iran, I'm sorry. Iran. Iran, okay. Um, the last chapter of the book is actually on Iran and the Iranian Revolution of 79. Mm. Uh, actually why Iran did not go communist in 1979, which a lot of people thought it would. Mm. Uh, I mean, if you, if you sort of travel back to the, you know, 1978, there, there were no you know, modern theocracies in the world. So the idea that a country could have a revolution and then 
you know, put theocrats in power was sort of unthinkable to anybody, right? Nobody believed that not only, not only could, you know, someone like Ayatollah Khomeini take over control of a state, but could then remain in power in a state that's, you know, still there 40 years later. Um, this was unthinkable. So um, a lot of people assumed Iran, once it had a revolution, the Shah was overthrown, would go communist. And so the last chapter of the book is why Iran did not go communist and actually what the Islamic Republic of Iran owes to the legacy of socialism in the third world. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So what made you uh, kind of spurred you on for this book. We talked about kind of the inspiration for your last book. What was up? What made you put this, want to put this one out? Well, I think, so part of it is that I still think there's sort of a misunderstanding about the history of socialism. So I think, you know, uh, it's it's amazing when you talk about socialism in the United States, and I think you, you alluded to this earlier, right? You sort of get two reactions. One is, you know, all socialism is, is exactly the same, right? Bernie Sanders is Joseph Stalin, right? There's no There's no meaningful distinction. And the other reaction is that, no, like this, it's ridiculous to talk about Bernie Sanders as Joseph Stalin. They have nothing in common, right? Right. Um, and my answer is, well, neither of those is really true, right? I mean, socialism is, you know, it, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. It evolves over time. And so I can draw you a line between Joseph Stalin and Bernie Sanders, which does not mean that, one is, that they're identical. It just means that our connections. Um, and so I think, and I think part of it is that we, you know, we... In, in academia, and the, you know, most history departments, right, are, are, you know, dominated by people on the left, right? It's not a secret that most, you know, history professors vote Democratic and such. And so, you know, the kinds of tools that we have, right, the tools of, you know, of the trade are really used to sort of deconstruct um, the kinds of things that, you know, people on the right tend to care about. So, you know, we, we, we deconstruct the ideas of, you know, nation and race and gender, right? And, you know, these things that are seen as traditional sort of bulwarks that, you know, historians like to, you know, like to deconstruct and like to break apart and look at the history and how has this evolved and, you know, how has it changed over time? Um, but they tend not to do that with, you know, things on the left because, you know, there's this, everybody likes to think that, you know, let's say, you know, the opponent evolves over time, right? The opponent has these historical dependencies, but we're just reacting in real time to what happens, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the, we are we are reacting now to the state of capitalism as it is, or we are reacting now to the state of whatever. Um, and so I'm arguing that you know, socialism and you know, the history of the left also has you know, it has it has a legacy, it evolves, it has path dependence. Um, and so this is about tracing that history. Um, and and my argument fundamentally is that you know, the, the socialism that we have today, and you know, you can see polls that show that you know. More, more young people in the United States have a higher opinion of socialism and capitalism in America today, right? So it's, it's, it's not even, you know, as, as, as Faulkner would say, right? The past is not only, not only is it not gone, it's not even past, right? <laughs> so, so the point is, it matters now more than ever um, that we have an understanding of, you know, what socialism means, where it came from, how it evolved, how the socialism we have today is not the socialism of Joseph Stalin, but it does actually have, you know, ways in which it evolved from that. Um, and so, you, you know, I think most people aren't really familiar with the history of, you know, the DSA and such, but, um, the point is that, you know, socialism still, it exists in different parts of the world. It's, oh, yeah. you know, it's evolved in different ways. Um, and, you know, we have to understand that history for understand where we are today. And so would you say that socialism is a net positive, net negative today? I mean, I think it depends on, on, you know, what it means and, and, you know, and how it's being implemented. Um, I think you know there are there are things we can talk about as socialism that might have positive aspects. Um, there's things that have negative aspects. Um, 
I think you know you'd have to see how an individual interpretation, individual party um, is 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 planning to 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 use it. Yeah. Okay. All right. And so the book you said comes out on it was December last time I looked. It's January now. It's now January fourth. Yes. Is that, is that a supply chain deal or is it just a publisher deal or is it just like you know what I want to push it back to the next year? I'm I'm told, that, I'm told it's supply chain. The supply chain is getting everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good thing about podcasting is there is no supply chain constraints yet. I'm sure we'll find something <laughs> in the future. Okay, but, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but the bottom line of the book is that socialism is is a thing that evolves over time through a process of trial and error. Mm. And Cold War, that process of trial and error and experimentation took place mostly in the third world. Yeah, well, I, I like the statement you said earlier. I wrote it down. Social control of means of production, I think, is the quote I got from you. I think that's a very helpful paradigm <laughs> you're debating these issues because you don't want to equate what Bernie or AOC is saying compared to, you know, Stalin, as you said a minute ago, uh, but you also can't negate that what they're saying is not free market capitalism. Uh, it's not historic socialism. What is it? And so how do you think about that? That's a, a very important distinction. And, and one of the things about political discourse that, that frustrates me, I think I said earlier was, you know, we'll blame something on capitalism or on socialism. It's like, well, okay, if we're talking about historic terms, that's not really helpful. And so both sides will say, well, that's not that. And that's not that. And it's like, Okay, we didn't actually accomplish anything. So I think that's a helpful way um, to consider it. So looking forward to the book coming out. I will read it and love to get you back on to discuss it um, early next year after you do your big, hopefully global book tour. Set your you know number one bestseller all time or something like that and, uh, and discussing the book with you then. Thank you very much. Okay, and so where do you want people to go? Anywhere to send them between now and then to go uh, follow your work or do you have a, a website, a blog, a Twitter, LinkedIn, something you'll you, you point to? Um, I would say, you know, go buy the book. Um, the book is available on Amazon, on Harvard University Press. Um, it's available for pre-order. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, Right for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World. Um, it's, got, it's got a good looking cover too. I like the cover on it. So, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, the cover's, the cover's good looking. So, okay. All right, well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and we'll be back next week. Thank you very much.